G'day guys. Today it's a diamond in the rough. Yanni Barthelmess. This guy comes in way, way under the radar, but absolutely delivered. Yanni gets out sparing two, three times a week. Lives in the Sydney area. He's been spearfishing his whole life. Um, absolutely loves foraging and uh, growing things in his own garden. He's definitely got that um, cooking passion and partnered with a love for the ocean that most of us share as well. He's a fantastic guest, and I love today's episode. Check him out on Instagram, at huntfishgrowcook. But if you're new here for the first time, welcome along. My name is Isaac, a.k.a. Shrek. I host this sucker, the Noob Spirit Podcast. It's interviews with spearfishing experts, authorities, and characters from around the world. People just like you who froth on the spearfishing lifestyle. Today's episode with Yanni an absolute blinder. Noobspero.com forward slash Yanni for any of the links and stuff we chatted about today. Um, cooking is definitely a heavy topic throughout the show. Enjoy. Let me know what you think. You can always join the Noobspero community on Facebook or follow us on Instagram, uh, also on YouTube as usual. Um, anyway, a couple of quick shout outs before we get there. Kurt from Homestead Restaurant on Norfolk Island reached out. He says, I need the right person to fill my chef job out here on Norfolk Island. I think someone who listens to the New Spirit podcast and someone who's in our community would be perfect. If you can think of someone who loves spearfishing, the ocean, gardening, and the island life, we could fully hook them up. Thanks, mate. Email me, Shrek at New Spirit. If you want to pursue or apply for this job out on Norfolk Island, I'll put you in touch with Kurt. So email me, Shrek at NoobSpirit.com for that. Um, Maylene reached out, says, Hey, Shrek and the Noob Spirit team. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. I'm totally in love with it. Thank you for this work. I'd love to have a copy of the 99 Spiro Recipes cookbook, but I cannot find where I could purchase it. Are there still copies available? And would you also ship to the Canary Islands? Good news for Maylene. And I told her this as well. Go to noobspiro.com forward slash 99 recipes and get in line for one of the very first copies of the book. Uh, if you are registered here, you will be one of the very first to get your hands on a copy um, after the people that have contributed recipes and the people that backed our Kickstarter uh, for the project because we we got up and uh, this project's nearly ready to ship out the door. Uh, beta readers are doing the job right now, going over the book with a fine-tooth comb. Make sure we don't have spelling mistakes because old Shrek with his sausage fingers, you know how that goes. Anyway, uh, also, if you want to leave a voice message for the Noob Spirit podcast, go to thenoobspirit.com, head up into the menu, Nooba Stories. You can leave up to three-minute voice message. Short and sweet's great, though. Tell me about a scary story. Tell me about uh, something you learned from the podcast. Whatever you like. I love to have a voice for the community. Go to noobspirit.com, up Nooba Stories. Check that out. Mike McGuire, Freshwater Worlds. Says, uh, Freshwater World Spearfishing Championship is planned for June 2023. Stay up to date with that at freshwaterworlds.com. Fantastic event, great place to network and uh, get out of your comfort zone, try something a little different, especially for us, mostly saltwater sparrows. It's a really cool thing. They knock out heaps of invasive fish and have a ball as usual when you get into a place with a bunch of sparrows. You talk a lot of rubbish and, you know, we listen to the podcast. Um, Mick reached out to me, he said, hey, he said, I listened to your latest episode with Chris the Deer and I found it fascinating how progressive Canada is with First Nations involvement in promoting a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and the cultural ties to hunting and fishing. I'm a First Nations man for Western New South Wales and I work in this field. And he says, I think there's a huge appetite for Australians to be open involved in promoting the benefits of a lifestyle change of sorts. He says, despite the red tape and the confusing rules and regulations, he thinks there's a groundswell of, 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 of action headed in this direction. And he loves listening to the podcast despite living 
400 kilometers away from salt water. So maybe freshwater worlds for you too, Mick. But a fantastic email. I love getting the emails from listeners just like you who froth out on this podcast. Anyway, massive intro today, but super cool interview to follow. Let's get into it. Yanni Barthelmess. Here we go. Neptonics.com source the very best in sparing gear from around the planet. Jerry says, if we sell it, we believe in it, we trust it and dive it. Neptonics is the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing essentials. Neptonics is solid gear that works, and you'll know it's true when you pull the trigger on a Neptonics mech. On every snap of a Neptonics power band and in every whiz of a Neptonics spear gun reel, singing with the power of another big fish. Buy gear you can depend on at neptonics.com. Use the code NOOB10 to save 10%. Adreno.com.au, the home of recipes, blogs, videos, equipment reviews, and an obnoxiously large range of spearfishing equipment for frothers like you. Not only that, but spearfishing trips and courses, courses and trips that I sometimes get to go on. Check them out at adreno.com.au. It's a Spiro's best friend. Check them out. And if you want to buy gear, pump in the code NoobSpiro to save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can use that online, in-store. Use the code NoobSpiro. Save some cash and support the NoobSpiro podcast. Shop with adreno.com.au. G'day, Noobers. Today, I've got Yanni Barthelmess and uh, the pronunciation. I got it right. First shot. How well done. I, how did I do that? Yanni has been a, a multiple contributor to 99 Spare Recipes, and uh, he's sort of a guy that's flown, flown under the radar, but until I started seeing his recipes, and then I was like, I'm going to reach out and have a chat with this with this guy, and then I found his, uh, his Instagram and, uh, and his pizza reviews on YouTube, which we were just discussing, Yanni. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome along, mate. It's great to have you here. Um, yeah, thanks. It's good to be here for a chat. Yeah, cool. So a Shell Harbour, New South Wales, Spiro. Have, how long have you been at it? How old are you now? Uh, 43, just turned 43. Um, yeah. Started when I was seven. Holy so, moly. Yeah. So it's a family sport. Yeah. Oh, my dad um, My dad was really into it. Um, you know, I've got some of his old scuba gear still, like where he was making his own mouthpieces out of you know, tobacco tins and stuff like oh, that yeah. back in the early days of, spear, of uh, scuba. And okay. uh, he grew up in the eastern suburbs and, you know, spearing around Bear Island when you could do it and and all of that sort of stuff. And then, you know, as a kid, he'd take us down to Kayama um, or Cronulla and, yeah, we just uh, we grew up on the water and fishing and spearing and surfing and all that. You kind of spoil. It's a beautiful part of the world. You like so you you, you grew up in Sydney though, and you've you've sort of made the uh, the move a little bit south. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Travelled around the world for for the best part of my sort of twenties, and then um, was out at Ayers Rock. Actually, met my wife working out at Ayers Rock, and uh, we wanted somewhere to settle and move down to the south coast. So very happy with the move. So are you a chef by trade? Because I definitely picked through on you, like your level of professionalism when it comes to food and stuff like that is, is you, it's all, it's evident you've had a lot of experience um, working in and around food. Are you a chef by trade as well? No, no. Okay. Um, I manage food and beverage yeah. for a club group. Okay. Um, so I've got a few chefs. Um, we've got a big team of chefs uh, working with us. Um, but my family's been in food for a very long time. My grandfather owned a restaurant called Prunier's, which is in the uh, that was in the eastern suburbs where Matt Moran's restaurant is now. Okay. Um, yeah, and our whole family's just always always been in food. So, mm. what's your what's your heritage? What's Greek. your well, Greek? Ah, okay. 
But I'm, I'm picking up like a number of different sort of um, takes on some of your recipes. Like you've submitted a Brazilian fish stew. There's mm-hmm. um, urchin tostadas. You've got a yeah. sp- your spaghetti one there. There's uh, um, charcoal grilled goatfish with kombu butter. And lobster tagliatelle, is it? Is It sounds yeah, Italian. Yeah, lobster tagliatelle with the tomato cream. Is that Italian? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you- I spent time in, in most of those areas um, okay. and picked up different things sort of while mm. traveling. Oh, wow. Um, and as part of my job, it's, you know, it's important to sort of have a, have a finger on the pulse of a lot of different trends and things like that. I also grow a huge amount of uh, produce out of our gardens. Um, we've got quite a lot of garden space and um, we try to eat quite seasonally. And a lot of what I hunt for when I, when I spear is something that's going to go with something that's ready in the garden. So if I've got, you know, some carrots ready to come out, I'll go for abalone because I want to do, you know, some abalone with a, with a carrot puree or something like that. Um, if I've got tomatoes fresh there, I'll go for some lobsters because I want to do the tomato um, cream for the tagliatelle um, with the lobsters. This is, um, this is following a trend that I think a lot of people are em- quite envious of. It's e- eating seasonally and eating locally. And if you can have a hand in the production of all of the, the, the sort of the ingredients, I think there's a, there's a massive grab here for a lot of Spiros. Mm. I've seen um, a big shift in it as well. Yeah, it's it's changing. I'm glad we're kind of – we're not at the front end because I think there's been a, people pushing in this direction for a long time like Kimmy Werner and um, the Finn and Forage guys in California are great examples. There's mm. uh, Kat – uh, catch uh, what is it? Eat what you kill in New Zealand, like they were doing this, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, but it's cool to kind of be there. So your Instagram handle is Hunt Fish Grow Cook. Yep. Um, so this is evidently you, you've been into this for a while. Yeah, I mean, we grew up doing it. Um, you know, our, our family was always always around. You know that that sort of uh, catching and eating what you what you had, eating seasonally as much as possible. I think especially in the restaurant game, you know, you keep your costs down by having seasonal menus. Mm. You know, you. I think these days we're so acclimatised to being able to get tomatoes all, all year round when we really shouldn't be able to get tomatoes in this area all year round. Is this is this part of the problem? Like, I don't know much about restaurants or the food industry in general, but is it like, you know, if you, if you, if you become a good restaurant, it's like you have that, you know, there might be like three or four like super crowd favourites there. Yeah. And... And, and then some restaurants fall into the trap of trying to produce those dishes year-round because it's what they're well-known for? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and not having the right cost controls around those items. You know, if, if it needs to be expensive, then make it expensive. You know, values what's in front of you, cost is what you pay, you know. Um, and if it's perceived value and it lands in front of someone, they don't mind paying for it. So... You know, I think um, restaurants that get a little bit confused with their direction and their um, identity uh, are the ones that don't really last all that long. How do you see the the connection between seafood as we catch and prepare for our fa- friends and families and then the commercial seafood restaurant reality, particularly on the east coast of Australia? Mm. Why is there such a disconnection between awesome local species that taste sensational and what we see on the menu? Oh, that's a big one. Uh, there's the legislation, which needs to be there, definitely, around what we can actually catch and cook. Um, you know, restaurants actually, you know, as much as we'd like to buy locally down here, most of our seafood does come up, come from up north. When you see the market floor lately, 
you know, the fish markets have had nothing on the floors for the past, you know, four or five months. Um, what, why is that? We- uh, the weather. The weather's had a big part to oh, do with it. Yeah. But I've yeah. heard, I've, I've heard, and this is purely anecdotal, so mm. like 100% slay me if I'm, if I'm completely ignorant. Some people talk about like when we have particularly like rainy seasons and we seem to be in the grip of a La Nina cycle <laughs> down here at the moment. Yep. And we've just been, we've been getting oodles and oodles of rain, like floods yep. in some parts, particularly probably a bit further north of where you are. And, it, you know, Queensland, we had our ones particularly in the southeast corner and but up north, they, they've had it sort oh, of everywhere all along. We've copped our yeah. year total in four weeks, you know. Yeah, well, okay. So, but but some people say that, like, for some fish stocks, um, those huge volumes of rain can be a- actually quite good for um, getting a, a bigger or a larger yield out of, like, the, the spawn seasons. A hundred percent. And I think we're already seeing it. Um, you know, we saw through that drought period. I had a conversation with someone this morning about this. Through that drought period, we saw great viz down here, but it was quite barren. And a lot of those fish that um, we were seeing, I suppose, 10, 15 years ago in close, we weren't getting them in close. We were having to go, you know, throw the boat in and go wide um, and hit sort of some un- unfished reefs and stuff like that to get to a lot of that, that ground. Ever since we've had this volume of rain, and even in the last couple of weeks I've noticed it, I mean, I saw a marlin free jumping off the, um, off the tip of Bass Point in 30 metres of water the other day. <laughs> you know, first jump, I went, oh, that's a dolphin. Second jump, I went, that dolphin's got a pointy nose. And third jump, I'm like, oh, it's a marlin. You know, it stirs your heart seeing stuff like that. Doesn't yeah, it? it's good. and it's just good the to see. volume of fish that we're getting, and the and the volume of bait fish that have moved in close because of all that runoff, is fantastic. And we've just got to put up with some poor viz. You know. <laughs> so again, just circling back to the question because I circled you away from it, and mm. we went off on a pleasant uh, sort of. Subtract there <laughs> with the disconnect between like local species and and again the restaurants. Is it so? Is it a supply issue as much as it is anything else? Yeah, it's also consumer led. Um, a lot of consumers don't really understand. Um, it's up to us as an industry to to gradually bring them on board. And people like Josh Nyland and those you know those superstars of the industry um, really do help propagate that because it starts at that top end of the industry. Um, even that vegan push at the moment is starting at that top end of that of the industry. Um, so Josh will help push that through. But you know stuff like um, leather jackets, we're only just able to start selling those in restaurants because people just wouldn't eat them. You know stuff like bonito and having bonito sashimi. You know so many older people just saw that as a junk fish bait, all that sort of stuff, and you couldn't put it on the menu before. Mac tuna, same sort of thing. You know, and we're starting to see that push from the top end of town flowing into um, the mid-range and low-range restaurants. Do you, do you think with Benito and, and the Mac Tuna, it's it, like they're fish that need to be bled and iced fairly quickly, if, if, if I'm not wrong. And Absolutely. Possibly some of the older fishing practices, we, we, maybe, maybe there was that wasn't happening. So, I mean, if you don't bleed those fish and they, they drown or whatever, they, they probably are pretty junk to eat, I'd imagine. Yeah, they are. They're terrible. And I mean, a lot of, um, again, from the top end of town, it, it is lead, um, but they're getting their fish from um, people like Chris Bolton, who's all hand line caught, brain spiked um, and iced straight away. And a lot of his fish he's getting to market within 24 hours, you know, and he's getting a lot of the, the reef fish from up in North Queensland, coral trout, uh, emperor, stuff like that. But restaurants are advertising it as such on their menu, you know, line caught, brain spiked, and it's educating customers to the benefits of that. So, and I see nothing but good things. 
Brain spike sounds so primitive. I can see why we 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 we, <laughs> we swapped it out for the Japanese expression. Even though, yeah, even though I can't even say it properly. And <laughs> people correct me all the time, and then I just default to the first way. I Is it I not Ikejimi? Uh, Ikejime, I think, or oh, something. Wow. I, I can't even remember honestly. Like, um, someone's corrected me, and then I've taken to it for ten minutes, and then my um, my goldfish brain has just reverted <laughs> to its defaults. <laughs> <laughs> But um, so you have, you like, let's get, we'll circle back and we'll chat more about um, cooking if you like. I, so seven years old, you're sort of in this eastern suburbs area. Um, your dad's scuba gear. What Were you like jumping in summertime, just following him around on the surface? What did that look like? Yeah, no, he just handed me a hand spear and, um, and we'd just chase around different things. He always carried a flasher with him, um, just a piece of PVC pipe um, wrapped in reflective tape. We speared a lot of squid as a kid. Mm, um, mm. He'd just throw the flasher out there. And um, to this day, I'll still carry a flasher with me every dive and throw it in over the, the grassy areas on the way back in. And he must have been one of the first people to do that. I don't know. He may have been. He just always had one. You know, it was just – there was always a flasher clipped to his belt. It's it's funny, like, I mean, we <laughs> – I think even in spearfishing, we we don't even realise the origins of some of the things we do. It'd be interesting to have a chat with him, see where he got the idea from. Yeah, it'd be hard. He passed away a couple of years ago. So. Okay, I'm sorry. sorry <laughs> That's okay. He um he yeah I don't know. He was he was in a bit of an inventor. You know, he yeah. uh, he invented a few. He invented a microwave pool heater and patented that. And oh wow, you know, he was always down tinkering with different things and you know breaking more things than I think he fixed. But uh, Australia and New Zealand are. I think maybe due to our roots and being relatively young countries, there's this there's this innovative vein that runs through a lot of the people, particularly sort of first second generation um, people down here, and uh, that's awesome to hear. Mm. Sounds like he really handed on a love and an appreciation for the ocean. Have you? So you were down there in that New South Wales area, then you've travelled the world. Did you take spearfishing with you? Yeah, I did. I actually went to uni in Townsville um, and studied marine biology at uni in Townsville. And um, we did a lot of spearfishing up on the reef as part of that. Um, I worked in the Whit Sundays for a spell on uh, on charter boats and um, and taking people spearfishing and, and fishing and diving around there. Oh wow! And um, yeah, worked on Orpheus. Probably one of the best islands I worked on was uh, Orpheus Island up in the Palm Island Group, about hundred k's yep. north of Townsville there. Mm. And that place is the lost world when it comes to fishing. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's untouched. You know, there's just yeah, it's. You know, everything from marlin to Spanish mackerel to tuna to all the reef species, all the crays, everything. It's just untouched up there. How long were you up there for? I was on Orpheus for about eight months. So hard place to live. Yeah, I'd imagine. And that disconnect, um, I think it's very appealing for a little while, but I'd imagine after some time, with family, it depends on where you, when you did it too, like telecommunications might not have been very good at the time. Yeah, I wasn't that long. It was 2007, so okay. – or two thousand, yeah, 2007, and it um, it was fine. It was just, you know, as a, as a single man and only 14 staff on the island and unable to get off the island for eight months at a time, it was uh, – Cabin fever. Yeah, it was tough. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so – but you would have got to see nearly a full season, so – um, what kind of things did you start to pick up on being a relative newcomer and then experiencing eight months on the on, on in that area and sort of um, yeah how, what 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 sort of stood out to you or what did you start to learn and observe about the environment you were diving in? 
the Viz was a big a big factor up there. I mean, being close to Hinchinbrook Island, um, you were always quite wary for crocs and stuff like that. We had a croc turn up on the beach one morning that we had to get rid of before the guests woke up because, uh, you know. <laughs> Bad for business. Well, it's $5,000 per person per night. Like, that resort's incredibly exclusive. Um, yeah. They couldn't see a crocodile on the beach. So we had to bundle that up and and take it back across to Hinchinbrook and let it go. Oh, wow. Um but uh, the diving there, you know, everything's got teeth. You know, we, we had um, influxes of, of sharks. If we speared in one location sort of more than three days in a row, then we definitely yeah. saw a big increase in the amount of, uh, of bull sharks and tigers. Um, there okay. was more tigers in that region than I've seen anywhere else um, now or since. Okay. So that was, that was concerning. So three days of sustained spearing, you're starting to see this sort of this learned behaviour. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Any idea on how long it takes to fade out again and then you get there? No, we generally, we're pretty lucky. I mean, it's it's a big island, big island group. Um, we never really had to sort of hit an area um, too often. Um, it was more chasing schools of tuna or, you know, chasing mackerel or um, there was a lot of big schools of Spaniards up there. Mm. Um, which was always good fun. Um, and then learning where, like, the different holes for, for trout because there was uh, a lot of trout up there as well. And did you find, like, is it like a lot of the Great Barrier? I, I don't know. I've only done Southern Great Barrier, so I don't know. So I'm, I'm definitely not an authority on this. But sometimes we would I've, – I've swum for six, 700 metres and oh, – sorry for my American friends, about a third of a mile. And, uh, and you're not really seeing – too much going on, even with trout, and then all of a sudden you hit a bommy and it's just loaded. Absolutely. And and then every fish you shoot, it's like two more appear, and then sometimes you get 20 or 25 on one bommy. Yeah, but I find that in a lot of spaces. You know, I find that down here, you know, learning this area, like not having grown up down here and learning this area, there are definite aggregation zones, and be it current or be it the bottom contours or the bottom makeup or whatever, whatever the case may be, you do find these aggregation zones of fish and, you know, you start – hunting those more often and being quite successful because they do replenish in those aggregation zones, I find. Were you ever guilty of um, sustained diving in areas where there's really not too much going on, like, you know, in terms of indications like bait species and, you know, just that, you know, like sometimes when you, you swim over a spot and you can see an aggregation of bait and then you see two other or three other species and then you think – this is the spot I'm going to dive on. You spend some time trying to get some sustained drops on it. But, but sometimes, I, and, and this is from my experience, I've spent a long time diving unproductive areas when I should have just been swimming looking for a productive area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You might find a spot that looks productive and, and you do. You start hitting it over and over and over again and using a large part of your dive and then, you know, you swim 40 metres away and you realise that that's where you should have been the whole time. So. It's funny, like when things from economics, you know, like opportunity cost is something that I think about more as I get older. Yep. And I think spearfishing, you get your 50 drops if you're lucky to get like a full day of spearing or, or maybe you get more, whatever. If you spend those 50 drops in unproductive areas, then you're lowering your, you know, your opportunity. You're not, you know, it's just not going to be there. Whereas if you focus your efforts in and around these clear points of, you know, um, of aggregations, like then you're going to get a lot more opportunity. These days, it's a lot different for me as well. You know, back then it was all about, you know, trying to find a trophy fish or, or specific species, you know, to cook in the restaurants for guests or something like that. Whereas I find these days, yeah, I'll hunt the aggregation zones because I want to feed my family, you know, and I might have a certain time period that I can really get out. 
and or a target species to cook with something from the garden. And um, yeah, do you think do you think this is why like guys with finite time windows and guys that dive comps are probably a lot more efficient at finding fish and getting some wins on the board? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those days when you, I find I'm far more successful. If I go out and just, you know, I know I need to get, you know, some runs on the board. If I've got nothing in the fridge, you know, stuff like that, nine times out of 10, I'm successful. You know, as long as I'm relaxed before I get in the water, if I'm two on edge when I get in the water, then I think fish know it, you know, they can definitely feel it. You hit the bottom and everything just runs away. Do you, do you have like some rules of thumb for, for sparing or some like anecdotal truths that you tend to live by? Like, for example, one of the ones was, and I think we've been talking about it, is you don't leave fish to find fish. Mm. So, like, if you've got an aggregation, spend time on it. Yep. Don't, you know, like, have a good time exploring it before you you bug out and go and try and find something else. Um, do you have any of those that you sort of, like, like sort of these um, heuristics, if you like, that you you dive by? Yeah. I mean, one one big one for me is get to the bottom. You know, I just just don't stop. Just bomb to the bottom. Hit the bottom and then and then start hunting once you're on the bottom. You know that alone for me. Anyone that's come spearing with me or um, people that I've taught over time, that increases their their success rate immeasurably. You know, yeah. and I think it's it's partially being relaxed when you hit the bottom. Mm. You know, and that that moment of actually just calming down, and fish will turn around and come towards you. You know, fish are naturally inquisitive. Yeah, hundred percent. What about though? A lot, a lot of guys, and you've since you've trained a few, you know, like you, you, you're taking out a guy. He's like a, he's like happy in thirty feet, mm. and then, and then, but he, you know, like the temptation always is for guys to kind of dive on the edge of what they feel quite competent, competent at. So he might be diving in forty feet with you, um, you know, pushing it just a little bit because he's there with an experienced dive diver. Um, how do you coach them through it? Do you just Make them spend more time on the surface and be conservative or no, I generally won't. If I'm if I'm with new divers or people that I'm unsure of, um, their experience levels, we won't go deep. You know, we'll stay in 10 meters of water max um and get comfortable together, you know, learn each other's idiosyncrasies and the way they look when they're coming up when they're comfortable. You know, so you can see when they're coming up when they're not comfortable um later on. Um, and then we start moving deeper. So, but I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm a naturally skeptical person of other people's skill levels and, yeah, you know, I, um, I don't want to see anyone injured. Yeah. This, this, there's that age old temptation though, like off Brisbane here, like so much of our diving's deep. Is it? And, and, and dealing with current. Yeah. We don't have a lot of shallow spots in large part because they've shut down like a lot of the bay mm. and the bay's mud bottom. So often it's dirty here. So with new guys, you get this gap where there's these kind of these, you know, new people that are like I started like broke <laughs> and, uh, and just hard up want to get in the water. And then so you're starting off the shore and you're flat out diving, you know, six, eight meters and finding, you know, if you get five meters of you're having a really good day. Yeah, right. So then you want to get on boats with other guys. And this is a problem for the broke guys like I was. I couldn't go out and just buy a $20,000 boat and mm. start heading out. Plus, I didn't have the expertise either. I didn't, I knew nothing really about boats or running a boat. Um, so you're jumping on boats with experienced guys that like to dive 40, 50 feet plus, you know? Yep. And um, so there's that gap. And it's just, you know, how do you approach it gradually? I think probably with some of the area you're in, 
a lot of it's shore diving. There's heaps of good accessible shore down there. Um, and if you're heading out in boats, you could probably still manage your depth Absolutely. Um, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I um I mean I've got a well, I've got a great boat because I like line fishing as well. You know, we'll go we'll go off the shelf line fishing, but you know, if we catch a if we find a big school of tuna or a big school of dolphins, dolphin fish, we'll jump in on that and shoot those as well. So, you know, we've got the best of everything. Um, but if I'm short for time, we've got some of the best shore diving around, you know, just along here. And you can get everything, you know. Um, I mean, I speared yesterday in three meters of water and came home with a couple of brim and a and a couple of Ludric, and that's yeah, that's nice. a good feed. Yeah, hundred percent. So it sounds like you haven't lost your passion for some of the inshore stuff as well, because some guys do that. They, you know, they go up the food chain and they never come back and they never re-explore sort of the roots mm. of it. Or no, I love it. I mean, this time of year, brim is just one of my all-time favorite fish. This time of year, they're just full of fat. You know, you can actually scoop the fat out and cook the brim in its own fat, and that is just, you know, for me, that's one of the best things. My son loves it. I got a six-year-old. And he's more excited about eating, you know, raw like raw brim than he is about McDonald's, you know. Um, and that's that's fantastic. So, walk us through that dive day. Like, you don't have to give us your spot, but um, I mean, what time? Did you, when did you get out there? And 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 how long? Yeah, just walk us through what what sort of happened on a, just a regular three meter day short diving. Yeah, no, I just I, uh, I jumped out of work at about three. I was in the water by three <laughs> thirty. Um, we've got a couple of of decent spots that was blowing southerly. Um, we've got some really good spots that that are protected in the southerly, um, okay. and there wasn't a lot of swell getting in. Um, it was more a reconnaissance dive to see how the viz was coming up because the viz down here lately with all that rain, I mean, I jumped in six days ago and I couldn't see the tip of my spear. Yeah, I've heard that. So it was more just having a look at how it was going to be for this weekend um, than anything else. And uh, I jumped in and it was about that two and a half, three metre viz. So not great, but in hunting sh- viz. Yeah, good. Yeah, great hunting viz. And in shallow water, it's it's okay. And I know this spot quite well, so I was actually able to sort of hunt around some ledges and you know dive down, spend a lot of time on the bottom, throw some sand. I know that around one of the corners, you know, there's always a big aggregate. It's a you know an aggregation site, yeah. and I know there's always um, a big school of ludric and some thumping brim hanging in behind yeah. those. Um, so I dropped down into that. Lined up, took a shot, um, and got a really good size Ludric on that first drop. And then there's a gap in the rocks with a little ledge, and the swell pushes over it. But if you can pop over the other side, there's actually a really big hole on the other side that's some really thumping brim. You know, they look like snapper. They've almost got that bump on the head and oh, that wow. blue tinge to them. And I came over that ledge, and there was one sitting right behind there. So I popped that one off and uh, found another brim on the way on the swim back in. And, you know, I was home by 4.30. Yeah, um, nice. you know, an hour in the water, just just floating around. Hey, those dives they they can be incredibly rewarding. Um, you just you just jumping out there for a feed and just enjoying yourself. I mean, part of it's just getting out and getting getting your face in the water and get like get nothing like holding your breath and just getting on the bottom. It's just fun. I don't it doesn't matter if you're in three meters with two meters vis or whether you're in twenty meters with fifty meters vis. It's it's still all fun. It's yeah, and I appreciate it more and more over time. I think you know, as a as a younger as a younger guy, you know, I, I found the calmness of it, you know, was was really important. It had calmed me down. It had it had relaxed me in a way that nothing else did. You know, I was, you know, getting that depth and the pressure felt like just bringing a big warm safety blanket over myself. And I always yeah. felt that. Um, and it was just another way to be in the water. You know, surfing, kite surfing. 
diving, all of it, you know, it was always a passion. And then as I've gotten older and just with the kids and, and things like that these days, it's still that, that mental, you know, focus point. Have you looked much into the physiology going on when you experience some of those sensations? Like you talked about being younger and maybe a bit more energetic and, you know, <laughs> sorry to be rude, it's not like you're old now. But no, like, no. You know, like you bounce around a lot more and sometimes I think a lot of us young young men, it's the testosterone and that it's Absolutely. almost like we, we have an ADHD and it can be really calming for that as you get older. But have you looked into the, physio- the physiological drivers behind some of these things you're talking about? No, not at all. And it would be an interesting – It'll be an interesting thing to sort of look into um, because I definitely, you know, it's it's something I want to instill in my son um, yeah. because it was a great release for for me. You know, it wasn't the go to the pub and you know have a fight and all that sort of stuff because you were pretty chilled out after a day of diving. You had the energy yeah. for it. You know, it's like a, it's like practical meditation for active people. Where hundred percent, hundred percent, and it is. It's like a meditation because you're focused on your breathing. You know, you've got to stay calm. You're, you're surrounded by, you know, all of that those things and you've got that singular focus. It is. It's a meditation for sure. Um, getting back to those heuristics, those sort of those rules you live by, I we got into one of them and then I interrupted you and we headed off into the weeds again. You talked about making sure that people get to the bottom before they start hunting. I think that's fantastic. Um, have you got any other rules of thumb? Not really, to be honest. That's, that's probably, you know, just I think – no, just taking your time, you know, not rushing, not rushing around the next corner, not trying to beat someone around the next corner. You know, every single ledge you come up over, there's probably going to be a fish and treating it like treating it like you're hunting on land. You know, you're not just going to bust around a corner and, and you know, because there might be a, a herd of deer sitting on the other side of it. You know, you come around that corner with purpose because you never know, you might have, you know, a thumping big brim on the other side of it or up over that ledge there might be some big kingfish or something like that. So, you know, just hunting with purpose. Every drop, hunt with purpose. Great news, guys. Adam Stern has made his freedivingfamily.com courses available at a discount for the Noob Spiro community. If you get on freedivingfamily.com, use the code SPIRO, you'll get 20% off any course there's a bunch of sick courses on there there's an equalizing uh stage one there's an equalizing advanced techniques um video there they're two of my absolute favorites if you have any problems with equalizing go to freedivingfamily.com get adam's course and use the code spiro to get 20 percent off any course check it out at freedivingfamily.com i just love a functional and simple spear gun that i can trust when i pull the trigger Killshot Spear Guns utilize the finest of kiln-dried Burmese teak. Killshot Spear Guns also combine American-made parts and fine craftsmanship to bring you accurate, reliable, and simple spear guns that you can trust fish after fish. Get $30 off any Killshot Spear Gun at KillshotSpearGuns.com. Yes and amen, Uber. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at KillshotSpearGuns.com. I'm really sorry for this terrible accent. Brought to you by Ed Martin at KillshotSpearGuns.com. In the world of freedive spearfishing, there's no magic breathing technique that's all of a sudden gonna get you down and shoot massive fish at depth and holding big bottom times, but there is a way to do it safer and smarter, take down more fuel to maximize the time that you have there. Learn at NoobSpearer.com forward slash Ted with Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. If you take down more fuel, you can stay for longer. Learning to take a bigger breath is not such a big deal. 
Ted breaks it down for you with a free online course, noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. Take down 20 to 30% more air just by learning how to take a full breath. Again, learn how to do it free at noobspiro.com forward slash Ted. So you've been sparing like 30 years plus. Um, Do you have an identified process for the way you sort of log and catalog and learn from, you know, your experience as you go or... Is it very much just something that you just relax into? No, it's um, it's just something I relax into. Um, if anything, starting to put some things onto Instagram over the last yeah. year. Um, the original purpose of it was to actually log what was in season in my garden and what I was catching seasonally in the water. Um, I've tried to keep logbooks in the past and I just haven't had the discipline to keep a logbook. Um we lost a lot of recipes when my father passed away. You know, we still argue about, you know, lasagna recipes and things like that over what he put in it. <laughs> and I see the Instagram page as, as much as anything as a digital ghost for my, my children um, that, you know, if anything was to happen to me or, or whatever, um, there's recipes there and there's, there's a history there of the things that they've eaten and, and I've cooked for them. It's a tough one, isn't it, social media? Because it's like you want that balance between like, I don't know, like I, I got stuck in self-promotion or even the promotion of this podcast, you know, mm. like using social media purely for that. Because, you know, you make something, you want other people to experience it as well. But when your motives become a little bit more pure, I think, and you're doing something like what you're doing, it can be even more fun. I'm looking through your Instagram right now, by the way, so if people want to check it out, Hunt, Fish, Grow, Cook. And um, I like the sort of the blend. You've got, oh, I can see okra there, you've got... Um, dragon fruit. Is that dragon fruit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First yeah, year yeah. that that one's flowered. So. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. And, and like, it's just a good, like, it's just, it's a, a, someone that eats and tries to live off the land. I think it's, there's a lot of inspiration in it. So it's cool. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, there's probably a, a big lean towards raw seafood at the moment in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause Why? I've had a, uh, I've had a bit of a, a just, I've seen a lot of dishes. Well, I've been researching different menus lately, um, all over the past probably year. I've seen a lot of uh, recipes and, and the raw side of it's really appealed to me. Um, and with my son loving raw seafood probably more than cooked at the moment, um, it's a little bit of just wanting to produce stuff that he likes eating. It's it's interesting we talk about raw. We've got quite a good raw section in this in the in the cookbook as you as you as you're aware. Yeah, yeah. A, a number of sort of chefs that we've invited to come in and because like my pitch to the chefs was like I think. Um, becoming a chef a lot of the time is about sort of learning these small skills and over time you get this compound effect of just you know hundreds of these skills that you 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 don't even remember learning but you just have them and um and anyway I, I so I asked them for some of their their tips for the cookbook and some of them are a little bit gun shy because of perceived legal action with regards to um you know food warnings and stuff around mm. which is a lot of there's a lot of fear and paranoia and, uh, you know, lawsuits m- maybe in different parts of the world uh, lend towards this, this fear. Um, I guess with social media, you don't have to worry about that. No, not at all. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll always promote looking after your catch. I think as spear fishermen, you know, we look after our catch better than anyone. You know, you're, you're, you're brain spiking, you're bleeding them. You know, you're you're generally only hunting for what you need if you're if you're a you know an ethical spear fisherman, I guess. Um, and you know, it's uh, it's selective. Are there any food safety precautions that you recommend to people when they are going the raw route? 
I always make sure that specific fish have different dangers. You know, I wouldn't eat uh, mahi mahi raw towards the end of the season. I mean, knowing what you, what you're eating. You know, um, towards the end of the season, I think mahi in my experience and what I've what I've read in different papers, they'll eat a lot of puffer fish and a lot of um, toad fish towards the end of the season, and that can actually accumulate in the flesh and make you quite sick if you eat dolphin fish raw, whereas that toxin's killed with heat. Ah, okay. So I won't eat, I generally don't eat dolphin fish raw, mahi raw, um, just because I don't want to risk it. Um, And that's just a personal thing. I know a lot of people do, um, but I have heard of a lot of people being sick from it. Um, Whereas there are other fish like, you know, kingfish, unless there's visible parasites, visible worms or something like that in the flesh, I've never heard of anyone you know, being ill from eating fresh kingfish. Bonito, great, fast-growing fish. Never heard of anyone being sick from eating raw bonito. The brims, you know, snapper, brim. Yeah, loud and clear, I think. So knowing your environment, knowing the species and, and having a good think about what is safe and, and possibly what's not. With um, You mentioned yellowtail kingfish before. Um, there's Some people say there's a parasite or a worm that they get at some ends of the season, particularly up here in the southeast, I'd love to hear it if you get it down there in um, south of Sydney, um, where basically like you cook kingi and it goes mushy. Mm. Have, you ever, have you ever heard of this and what is your sort of understanding of it? Yeah, yeah, no, there's uh, the bacteria, I think it was a bacterial parasite from what I was what I was reading. Um, yeah, and we do. We do get that towards the end of the season. It doesn't seem to affect the flesh raw and it's non-transmittable to humans um, as a pathogen, but... Um, yeah, it definitely affects them. You know, we'll quite often cook up just a little uh, slice of kingfish, um, especially this time of year, um, to see if it's if it's affected or not. Because okay. visually, you can't tell. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Isn't it? There's no real telltales until you cook it, and then it, until you cook it. Yeah, and then it just turns to mush, and you know, it's very disappointing when you <laughs> when oh, you put in all that effort for a nice big king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's such a. That's such a, I love shooting them, hey. Like, I love eating them. Me I like too. them s- smoked, kingy, like, fantastic fight in the water. Yep. Um, they're the not way they super, look when they come in. Yeah. Sometimes they're weary too. Like, you get, maybe you have a couple of days of diving them and then you see them, but they just don't come near you. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're in them and then they're all dumb. Um, and you, sh- you could shoot a couple if you wanted to, but, um, but it's still special. I, I love it. Yeah. Every time I see them, I get so excited every time I see them. And, you know, they are, they are a, a trophy fish in every in every aspect, you know. Amazing on the plate. The wings are, you know, oh, by far so and away nice. just one of my one of my favorite fish. I actually saw saw someone the other day cook them. They crumbed them and and had them with um, like sour cream and fermented chili. Ooh. Oh, um, and that just looked incredible. That was the the beach at Byron Bay, um, a little ah. restaurant up there, and. Uh, that looked that looked amazing. Um, sideline fermented chili. How, how would you go about that? So you pick them from your garden. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pick them from your garden um, and grind them up. Grind them up. Well, I'd grind some and leave some quite quite chunky. Okay. And um, and then put them in a vinegar solution. Yep. And uh, and then just leave them to ferment. In your cupboard, like yeah. no sun. Yeah, cover them um, and and leave them to ferment. Is that pretty much how you do a lot of vegetables? I don't. Um, I don't do a lot of fermentation. Um, okay. I probably just don't trust myself in the process <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, People buy fermentation setups, don't they? Like yeah. they, they have all the jugs and stuff and the containers that have got the right level of like um, air and flow and hundred percent. Sort of and I think you've got to be into it um, yeah. and got to go down that path to sort of understand the the science behind it. I wondered if you needed a culture though, like you do with like some of the other stuff. I don't think you do. Yeah, right. I don't think you do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that'd be an interesting again. Yeah, that'd yeah. Be interesting. To I, I, do more on. I, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy to eat the stuff. Sometimes <laughs> like, the, eff- the effort that goes into preparing, I'm just like, ah, I love it when you do it and I'll appreciate it. But I'm, yeah, like, um, you know, I have time for everything. Again, it comes down to that opportunity cost thing, I think. Yeah, I like a lot of simple flavors as well. Like a lot of what we grow, we grow six or seven different types of beans because, you know, I like the taste of every single bean's got a different taste and a different flavor profile and all matched with, you know, that's one of the reasons I'll go hunting for different fish because I want to match that fish with the flavor profile of, of one of the vegetables or, or something coming from the garden. So what does your garden look like? It's not huge. It's not huge. It's a, um, there's seven different garden beds okay. um, that just get rotated through the season. Um, they're all around the three and a half meters long by a meter and a half wide. And you got seven of those. Yeah, so it's it's a reasonable amount of space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, oh, yeah, sweet, my two like little um, garden beds that my wife tends to. That that, that sounds good. But we can and we then, can eat from the garden for five months of the year without wow. really having to go to the the shops to buy any vegetables. That's fantastic. So it requires a little bit of planning, um, but. Yeah, it's it's nice when you can go out and shoot fish and go to the garden and harvest everything from the garden and feed your family from yeah from that you've got yourself. Yeah. Um, with 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 gardens and stuff, it's something I'm starting to toy around with. I, I love eating out of the garden. Again, it's just one of those practicalities and, and sort of work life balance things. Um, is is it kind of like you've just got to start somewhere with something small? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Um, start with something easy, radishes. You know, yeah. if you're ever doing raw fish. Radishes are amazing with raw fish. You know, every single yeah. sashimi dish, you know, you can do pickled radish, you can do grated radish. And radishes are f- like from planting them as a seed to yeah. harvesting them is about four weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. So great for the kids. They get some, you know, pretty quick gratification out of growing it, you know, um, right through to, un- you know, garlic. Garlic's mm-hmm. six, seven months in the ground. You yeah. know, we'll plant it now and we won't pull it out until September, uh, until November, December. Okay, wow. You know, soil soil seems to be critical for for obviously for gardens. Um, are you? What's your thought and process? Yeah, my soil's really yeah. Soil's everything. Um, yeah. Be a soil farmer before yeah. an actual farmer. You yeah. know, um, I, I spend a lot of time on my soil. I'll every year I redo uh, a whole heap of soil. I'll actually get a whole heap of uh, seaweed from down the beach and we've got a lake right out in front of us like, and um like bull kelp or something yeah or i'll get some bull kelp from down at the down the beach or some um uh bracken weed okay um cray weed um yep. and then i'll get some ribbon weed from the lake and i throw that on the lawn with a couple of bags of uh, horse poo and a couple of bags of chicken poo and get the lawnmower and run the lawnmower backwards and forwards over it and chops it all up together ah. and then put that in the garden and three weeks later um, the acidity comes down a little bit because it's quite acidic when you first get it going. Yep. But that's my soil for the start of every new season. Ah, righto. Um, I bury all my fish frames, anything that I haven't minced up to use for burley. Um, a lot of that fish frames go in the garden. So how are you rotating? I mean, 
do, do the garden beds, do, do you rotate the ones sort of lying fallow or like how do you, like what's that sort of process? Uh, I don't have enough space to let one yeah, yeah. to let one go. So I, I hammer them pretty hard, but that replenishment of nutrients from from the seaweed and all of that uh, all of that poo has has served me pretty good. I save seeds um, from the from the garden stuff that's actually done really well in that location. So it's sort of hyper local um, produce that's done well. So if I get one bean plant that's produced, you know, ten kilos of beans from one bean plant, then I'm saving the seeds from that plant and replanting those. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good foil to. You know, um, and the filleting tables out in the middle of the garden. You know, so yeah, I can nice. just stand you got in the a big garden. Stainless bench. Yeah, yeah, big stainless kitchen bench. Did you make that yourself? Did you pick it up? Like it's something I've been curious about wanting to buy for myself too. Like you look at old butcher shops closing down, but pretty expensive. Yeah, no, I um, we've refurbished so many kitchens so often that we've always got spares. Um, that so we're guys out. can email you. And then and you'll, you'll source them. <laughs> Listen, I'll put it up on there every time I've got oh, one. Man, I'm sure 100%. people will put their hands will, up for them. I will take one. I'm coming down your way too, probably late June. So oh, unreal. I don't know how I'm going to get it home though. But yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> So no, we won't hold our breath for that. But So you got you got this garden going. Um, you you sort of got this delightful process of matching seasonal um, vegetables with catching appropriate seasonal fish. Um, I guess the other question i had with regards to the garden and and sorry if we're getting bogged down in this but because uh, it's a spearfishing podcast not a gardening one but i'm curious for my scratching my own itch here if you like <laughs> That's okay. um the uh pests are another massive issue so like you hear about guys like getting real clever like planting different things in that ward off insects and stuff and uh, most of us are trying to steer clear of like chemicals and toxins and stuff yeah. but but it's inevitable uh if we're if we're isn't it? I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, pests are inevitable. Um, but at the same time, I I sacrifice a little bit of my garden every year. You know, yeah, we're going to get a little influx of pests, but then the, you know, nature has got a good way of balancing itself out. So, you know, if I get a whole heap of aphids, then a whole heap of ladybugs turn up a couple of weeks later and I might lose a little bit of growth, but the ladybugs are actually going to balance it out. They're going to eat a whole heap of aphids. Um if any of the infestations on anything get too bad, then a little spray bottle with um, some crushed up chili. Oh, yeah. You know, and anything with uh, like soft skin, you know, any little caterpillars or anything like that, you spray them with a bit of chili water and they're not coming back, you <laughs> know, um, and that's perfectly fine for your garden. Um, and then a little bit of companion planting. You know, I've got a couple of roses planted in there. Um, I always plant a lot of uh, uh, marigolds. There's always marigolds around the place, um, which help. Tomatoes always have basil all around them. You know, just those little easy companion plants that go along with it all. So this is like basic permaculture type stuff. Yeah. Is that what we're talking Yeah, really, really simple permaculture stuff. I've had a guy, like he's like a big brother to me. He introduced me to some of these concepts and we did discuss them, but I just haven't put any of it into practice, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, give me an example of a companion plant and how it works. Um, ooh. So, what would be a good one? Well, the rose is a great one. The roses attract the aphids away from any of the other plants. Uh, you know, okay. the roses, the the aphids are, are, um, will hang out on the on the leaves far more than they of the of the roses and the new growth on the roses um, far more than they'll eat anything else. We just lost a couple of um, broccoli plants in, in our garden. Yep. Anything for them? Yeah, cover them. You yeah. know, any of the brassicas, um, yep. 
they're one of the hardest things to keep pests away from because you do, you get the cabbage moths. Yeah. Um, and my kids will chase cabbage moths all over the yard. Um, and you can put little, uh, there's little, you can actually make a little cabbage moth out of a piece of um, milk carton. Okay. Because um, they won't actually come into an area where there's another cabbage moth already there. So you can plant those around your garden and they'll, they'll generally stay away. Um, but other than going down every day and, and squishing every single caterpillar that you see, yeah, a net, you know, is probably the simplest solution to, you know, stopping anything eating your brassicas. And that's the same, kale, um, you know, cabbages, anything, any of those leafier things that they like to get into. Equalising problems can be something that derail you. Not today, my friend. Go to freedivingfamily.com. Check out the, either the Frenzel and Advanced Frenzel video or the Mouthful and Deep Frenzel Equalization course at freedivingfamily.com. You can use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. These courses are put together by Adam Stern and a select team of, of, of legends and to help you overcome different issues and help you perform better. And some of them are extremely relevant for freedive spearing. Check it out at freedivingfamily.com. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course. Shrek, my dude, you're killing it on the Noob Spiro podcast. Every guest you get on frosts on the spearing life and the actionable info is off the chain. Over here at Spearing Magazine HQ, it's the same, buddy. So many newers are submitting their adventures, lessons learned, and pictures here at spearingmagazine.com. Just wanted to say that uh, newers can get an international subscription here at spearingmagazine.com. They can also check out our In the Face apparel or getting a subscription to the world's greatest Spearing Magazine. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com. Shrek, thanks. Love what you're doing. Jeremy out. Walk us through one of your recipes. Um, Southern Cray spaghetti and bacon and tomato cream. Um, can you remember offhand how that, so how you'd make that? Ooh, not offhand. I could probably do the other, uh, is there the lobster spanakopita in there? Uh, I don't think I have it mentioned, but run us through it. That's yeah. good. Yeah. So the lobster spanakopita came about because it was just wanting to do something a bit different with um with lobster. Mm. Um, and I had a whole heap of silverbeet in the garden, um, an excess of silverbeet in the garden. So it was just simply just cooking the lobster, um, boiling the lobster um, for the set amount of time for the for the size, um, not really wanting to overdo it, um, and then hitting it in the ice bath straight away. That's a really good point too. Can you just explain um, how long you want to boil them for the parboiling sort of process and how you've sort of worked it out over time? Um, oh, man, generally it's it, for me it's eyeballing it these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if it's, you know, if it's a almost a kilo lobster like that one in the in the recipe was I think 800 grams. Um, yep. So we're talking two-pound two lobster. Two-pounder, yeah. pretty standard, yep. Um. That was eight minutes in the water, in the boiling water. Yep. So probably not enough to overcook it. Yep. Um, and then shocking it in ice water straight away. Um, that, stops, that stops that cooking process? Yeah, stop the cooking process. And then taking that out, roughly chopping it um, into sort of one and a half centimetre chunks. Um, and then with the silver beet, um, taking the thick stems out of the silver beet, keep those aside. You can make a, a really nice gratin out of that later, um, so not to waste the stems. But taking the leaves, and you need way more than you think you're going to need. You know, you okay. need a real big bunch because you know you start to break down any of that sort of spinach and or uh, silver beet, and it 
ends up as a smaller amount. So, yeah, with that, it was just, um, yeah, chopping it, well, wilts, really. Um, but chopping it all up, um, chucking it in a hot pan with a little bit of olive oil, um, big squeeze of lemon juice over the top, lemon zest, nutmeg, um, and then taking it out, getting in a colander and squeezing as much moisture out of it as you possibly can. Okay. Um, that's pretty key. Uh, it stops you getting a really uh, soggy base when you wrap it in the filo. Okay. Um, yeah, so you and even when you think you've gotten enough water out of it, walk away, leave it for a couple of minutes, come back and keep on squeezing. And then get it on a board, roughly chop your silver bead again. Yeah. Um, it just gets it a bit more uh, sort of rough chopped for like a nicer mouthfeel. Yeah. And then some more lemon zest, some more nutmeg. And fold your uh, ricotta, a fair bit of ricotta through it. I can't remember the exact amount that I had in there. Yeah, you're right. Um, broad, broad strokes is fine. We're all experimenters after all. That's it. Yeah, that's it. You know, um, I think it was about 500 gram of ricotta actually. And then, uh, and then fold your, fold your lobster through it. Get your sheet of filo. Yep. And line your dish with the filo. And then instead of actually putting a layer of filo over the top, just grab sheets and scrunch it on top. Okay. And a little bit of butter, chuck it in the oven until that filo goes, you know, nice and toasty and brown. And it's, you know, the most decadent spanner you've ever eaten. Oh, wow. That so. sounds phenomenal. And a, and a good variation for people that are, um, I, I mean, you, you can get sick of lobster, definitely. Like, yeah. Um, as, as delicious as it is, I mean, it's first world problem 101, isn't it? <laughs> like it's like, oh, oh, no, I'm sick of my lobster. What a horrible existence you must have. You start you handing know, some, them out to neighbours and stuff towards yeah, the end of the season. You know? Yeah, yeah. Some people are paying bloody 100 bucks a kilo for them or something like that, and here we are complaining that we're getting bored with them. But, um, yeah, this is the spirit of life sometimes. We, we sometimes are a bit too spoilt with how much seafood we actually get, and that's what – lends to part of the idea of 499 spirit recipes and maybe this appealed to you was that idea that um just because we have an abundant resource and we're able to tap into it at all times doesn't mean we have to keep shooting you know tastier and tastier and rarer fish just so that we can make the same three dishes that we know how to make 100 like, percent. that's that's the one thing that really drew me to it you know was you know there are going to be recipes in there for every every fish that people thought was a junk fish you know, we made tacos the other day out of Sergeant Baker, you know, and people would normally think that was a junk fish, but you've just got to take the time to take the pin bones out, you know, and it's a delicious fish if it's like that, you know, same as I was talking about with the, um, with the leather jackets, you know, and I think the more we can get away from eating those, I suppose, trophy fish, you know, um, snapper and flathead and, and tuna and things like that, the more sustainable we are. Just spread our efforts, I think, as 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 part of it. I, I was saying to someone like, it's like sometimes you become a better Spiro but a shitter cook because it's like you 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 can shoot like you know like super tender, super tasty fish, yeah, and 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 just hunt exclusively for those instead of doing what we did at the start, which is shooting pretty much anything that looks legal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you I mean, know, I'll like, probably get kicked out of, I'll probably get kicked out of the restaurant game for saying it, but I love Ludrick, you know, yeah. blackfish are, blackfish are delicious, yeah. you know, and they're also, if once you know how to shoot them, you know, there's idiosyncrasies to learning how to shoot Ludrick well, you know, they'll turn, you know, if you're on the same level as they are, they'll drop a pectoral fin on the side that they're going to turn. 
Um, ah. Like they'll turn, they'll turn straight at you and look straight at you. And just before they turn, the pectoral fin that on the direction they're turning will drop. So you can actually ah. lead the shot. Yep. yep. Um, and I love shooting them, you know, love shooting them, love eating them. My kids love eating them. You know, we eat, we eat a lot of Ludric from that. I think the blackfish um, are subjects to that that old problem where we bring the fish home and gut them in our kitchen sink. <laughs> oh, 100%. You've got to gut them out there. They're disgusting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> they're another fish. Like if you don't bleed them and, uh, and brain them straight away, they, they, they're, no, they're, just, they're, not, they're not great. No, same as Australian salmon. They probably fall in that, same, in that same vein. If you don't bleed them and gut them straight away and they've probably been left in a bucket with the flathead and the brim and all of that sort of stuff to die, they're not going to taste as good as flathead and brim. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but over the coals, oh, you know, yeah. Australian salmon done over the coals and just with, you know, as an open taco, that's fantastic. Do you think another p- problem with them is probably overcooking? Yeah, absolutely. I think any fish, the problem's overcooking, you know. Um, this is the problem, though. See, like, you know, I talked to you earlier about those people paranoid about the dangers of raw fish and they mm. want all these, you know, like they want protection from lawsuits and stuff. Even on any local level, a lot of people are paranoid about it. They put it in the same box as like chicken or pork. Yeah, and or, it's really not. No, nah, it's not. I, I found it remarkably forgiving. I'm a heathen when it comes to food <laughs> hygiene. I just I smash it up and eat it, you know, like. And and you know maybe I've I've been blessed with a I don't know like a, guts. a tough constitution or something. <laughs> yeah. I did live in China for a year after all, uh, but uh, but um, you know like yeah I don't know. It, I, it seems like paranoia to me a little bit. I think the simplest thing is just having a metal probe. Yeah, you know, to stop yourself from overcooking it or know exactly when your fish is ready. Having... I might try and link one up in today's show notes. Yeah. So, I'll do it in, uh, if people go to noobspiro.com forward slash Yanni, Y-I-A-N-N-I, because we should all learn how to say Yanni, <laughs> um, I'll link up the this this probe you're talking about. So just common household, like just a, a meat. Just a meat skewer, just a metal meat skewer. Yeah. And then just insert it into the fish while, like, while it's cooking, when you think it's, it's close to ready, you know, probably a little bit before you think it's close to ready. And if you pull it out and put it just on the bottom of your lip, just underneath your lip. Yeah. If it's warm, then the fish is done. Take the fish off and it's ready to eat. Yeah. You know, if it's if it's still cool, then the fish isn't cooked. And if it's hot, then your fish is overcooked. Yeah. And it's just that's the that's the simplest way to do it. And you'll see chefs from every level, right up to fine dining, you know, Michelin starred chefs, you'll see yeah. them cooking that way and testing their fish in that way. So a lot of they don't they're not even using a meat thermometer, they're just using like a metal skewer like you're yeah. talking about. Wow. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you learn something every day. Yeah, and it's just it's low tech, it's low fi, and it's just the yeah, easiest 100%. way to do it. And you can get them anywhere. You can get them in any sort of like you can get them in any supermarket or anything like that. So. Yeah, you know most top drawers have a have a metal skewer of some sort in there. Are you big into smoking, smoking fish? No, no. We've actually I've got a meat smoker at work. We've got a big mm. reverse offset smoker on a trailer. Um, yeah. is that the smoking we'll do, Wilbur? It is. Yeah? It yeah, is. Yeah. What are you doing um, there? You, you, you're, you're sitting up a, a, a trailer smoker and, and serving people? Yeah, yeah. We take it to festivals and we take it to uh, – we do it for functions and events and stuff like that. And we also mm-hmm. – um, it was great during lockdown um, as a way of staying in touch with our staff and our teams um, and some of our customers. We actually had it in the car park um, at one of the clubs uh, twice a week and we'd just fire it up and I'd be shaking, shaking margaritas and, 
and slinging brisket burgers. So, Ooh, damn. Yeah. As as good as smoked brisket is, smoked fish is also. Oh, know, smoked fish just, is on another level. Oh. You know? It's so simple too. Like once you get going, you're just like, why haven't I been doing this forever? Yeah. I mean, smoked kingfish wings or even, you know, smoked snapper wings. I mean, Smoke, smoked Spanish mackerel oh, is amazing. See, we don't get mackerel down here, so yeah, Spanish yeah, mackerel yeah. down here. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, um, what's it called? Slimy mackerel. Mm. Uh, smoked slimy mackerel is a, oh. is just fantastic and, you know, often thought of as just a straight-up junk fish, but it's, man, that's a that's an amazing fish smoked. So you've kind of got these two very specific areas of passion to spearfishing. Like um, I'm sensing a massive food draw, massive mm. lifestyle food draw, but then you've got the, the relaxation and that active meditative sort of, passion that we have for the sport as well. What else draws you to spearfishing? Um, I love the ocean. I mean, that's why I did marine biology at uni. Um, I, I I still read up on, you know, all the papers that come out and a lot of the research papers. Um, a lot of the stuff around aquaculture still fascinates me. Um, and that's a little bit from an industry base, from a kitchen base, seeing what's coming through, but also – you know, reading up about different things. You know, I'll jump in the water if whales are going past. I, I love, you know, getting in the water and having to swim around with them when, they, when they're cruising past. You know, I'll still nerd out, you know, if a big eagle ray comes past, I'll just sit on the bottom and, and watch that. Or if I see some shrimp just, you know, outside of a cave, I'll still sit out the front of that and, you know, see the beauty in, in that. You know, we, we are so blessed to have a sport that not only combines you know, providing for your family and, and eating and, and that side of things with some of the most amazing natural beauty and, and you know, seeing a, if you see an aggregation of mobula rays going past, you know, like these are the things that no one else on the planet, like think of how many people on the planet have sat in the water and seen that. There'd be no one, you know, like it'd be under 1% of people that would have ever seen that. Those mobula rays, um, I watched a really neat video. I think her name is Nadia something on Instagram. She's got below the water and drone footage of a school of orca. I saw that. smashing a school of them. Oh, man. How cool was that, eh? Oh, that was amazing. Have you been in the water with an orca before? No, no, I haven't. Well, I had one swim past off uh, Bendelong down on the south coast once. And um, I was just hunting in and around the rocks and turned around and there's uh, a pair of them. Holy moly. They're sitting behind me. They'd be code brown. They're so big. Man. So, like, just, you know how normally you can, you know, you get a sense that there's something big near you? No. Had none of that. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, well. Nothing. I literally turned around and three metres behind me, not swimming, just looking straight at me and just sat there and they just cruised past real slow. Whew. Yeah. I guess that's how they do what they do. Like, they're able to shut down that sort of that, that thing that triggers our senses because that must be how they sometimes they just seem to predate on seals and sea lions so easily. So easy. Absolutely. Like, um, or great whites. I, you know, you see yeah. them predating on great whites and, and yeah. wiping out whole areas of great whites. I mean Don't they just eat the liver or something on the great whites? They do. Yeah. They just split them and eat the liver. Um yeah. I had a lecturer at uni who was who was studying all of that and just, you know, he said that sharks had just disappear out of areas. You know, they yeah. had they were tracking one. And it yeah. it its friend, you know, or one of the other sharks in the area got eaten by a couple of orcas and that one just went for the bottom and reappeared in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, it was just. Yeah. 
the, nat- the natural world's just amazing at times, and um, that would be a special moment to have two of them right behind you like that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing. But we have, you know, like you think about all of those different moments, even the moments we have, like the scariest stuff when you've got sharks bombing in on you or something like that. You know, just there. Well, yeah, we've got some incredible moments. You know, tell us about one, one where you maybe learned a few things. Ah, uh, probably spearing solo during lockdown. You know, um, as we're <laughs> as we're not meant to do, but you know, yep. tend to do, do sometimes. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'd been on a, I'd been on a fairly deep drop. Um, not deep, deep, but just like comfortable deep. Maybe maybe fifteen, sixteen meters. Shot a really good snapper. And I'm swimming back to the surface, and in my head, I've already started working out how I'm going to cook it. You know, I was going to do a ceviche with some of it. I was going to do some, you know, the wings on it were going to be smoked, like, you know. And halfway to the surface, I feel a, a tug and and look down, and there's a, a really good size, let's call it 14-foot tiger. Oi. Thumping away on it. And that's that's then come up and had a real good look at me. Needed a, needed a bit of a shove with the with the gun reloaded and I'm by myself probably 200 meters offshore and uh, started swimming in, you know, very cautiously looking around and keeping an eye out and uh, a, a decent bonito swam past. So, you know, I couldn't see the shark anymore. So I shot the fish <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as you do, and I strung that on the line and I started swimming and, you know, feeling pretty happy. I had something else on the line, could still do my ceviche. And um, and then I felt a tug on the line, turned around expecting to see the shark, and there's a seal now ripping into uh, into my fish. Bonita. Oh. So I got into shallow waters, shot a shot a Ludric, and went home. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like shore diving and sharks, I f- I find that a lot more intimidating than I do boat diving with mm. sharks. Is that your take on it? A hundred percent, hundred percent. I've had more. I suppose, um, intense experiences shore diving with sharks. I mean, we were at a fairly popular spot um, getting crazed last last winter and came out of a hole and there was a big bull shark sitting right behind us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when they get to a certain length, they stop getting long and they start getting thick. Yeah. You know, this was a, this was a thicky. Um, and it snapped and just, you know, they go from being calm to being aggressive very quickly. And I bent my spear having to jam that one away. Um, that swam us right back up onto the rocks and we had to sort of, you know, come up around the cliffs to get away from that. Um, Jeepers. Yeah, yeah, that was a bit of a sketchy one. Um, Not like Bruce and Finding Nemo at all. No, no, nowhere near as friendly as that. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then other times you, you're quite happy to see them swimming around and, you know, they, they keep their distance and they're quite wary and we saw that a lot up on the reef. You know, you'd see a lot of bull sharks up there and they're quite wary and and everyone knows what's, you know, what's going on. Whereas a boat dive, you know, if you see a few sharks, you just get back in the boat. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, so I mean, takeaways for people like, you know, you tell someone you go spearfishing, the number one question I get is, oh, what about sharks? Mm. What's what's your what's your advice for new divers with sharks? The I suppose the best advice is I don't think the blood attracts the sharks. I think the movement of the fish and the and you know the Lorenzini ampules at the front of the shark's nose picks up electrical pulses. You know, that's one of their main tools for for sensing when an animal's in distress. You know, and when we shoot when we shoot a fish, right along that lateral line, they're sending out those those signals. You know, so the sooner you can brain spike a fish 
and stop that movement. And I mean, everyone's seen it. You know, you shoot a cobra off the back of a off the back of a bull shark. If you brain it, you know, and stone it in that first shot, the bull shark's not even turning around half the time. You know, whereas if you don't hit it properly, it's going nuts. So I think the quicker you can dispatch your fish, um, the better. We've got a really nice aggregation site up here of uh, grey nurses. And so quite often with new new divers, I'll actually take them out there first, you know, and we'll go for a little dive, we'll swim around, we'll see some grey nurses, and it gets rid of that initial fear of seeing a, a large fish in the wild yeah. because that's the initial fear, isn't it, you know? Yeah, 100%. Seeing a big, a big fish like that in the wild. Yeah. I think we're less likely to have encounters like that poor swimmer off Malabar sometimes because yeah. we're a lot more slow and methodical about what we're doing. You know, we're not kicking along the surface in a hurry to get somewhere, swimming along. You know, it's a little bit more slow and methodical. We're a little bit more aware of our surroundings. Um, and I think that that limits those sort of interactions. Mate, I saw footage of that bloke off Malabar. It's funny you should um, you should bring it up. Like, that was horrific. Isn't it? Like, uh, that shark did not – that wasn't a taste and go. No. That shark ate that bloke. Like it proper ate him alive. It came back and finished the job. The guy was dead within. It would have been fast, but hopefully, like, yeah. But jeepers, it was horrific to watch. Like as someone that goes in the ocean all the time, I looked at it and I was just like, I was dumbfounded. A couple and of I, moments of pause, wasn't it? You know, of wow, like the speed as well and the fury of of that was yeah. was phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, it puts a real check in you. It makes you just. I don't. I don't think we get cocky and like. Most of us have been in the water while can't you can't ever get cocky around no, sharks. It's, God no. But that that bloke got proper eaten alive. Like yep. it wasn't. It was you know like we, we there's this there's some urban legends around now that sharks don't eat people. They 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 just don't know what you are and they taste you and then they let go and they go. No no that shark bit him. Knew exactly what he was. Came back and smashed him. Ate him alive. Hundred percent. And yeah, I suppose I think we get. I think what we do get complacent with as well is the speed. Mm. You know, we we get complacent because we see sharks swimming, you know, at a leisurely pace around us when they're not in hunting mode. Mm. You know, the speed of a shark when it really wants to attack, um, and especially a white of that size, you're not stopping it. Nah, and they, you know, it's like a car that's able to turn like a forklift. Yep. But at the same speed as a car, yeah, and they, the, the, you can't you can't respond fast enough in the water. One we thing that stopped it. me blue water spearing um, a few years, oh, a fair while ago, um, you know, in my mid twenties, we were we were going out for tuna quite often, and um, and we'd shot a decent tuna, probably an eighty kilo yellowfin tuna off the shelf, and a friend and I were probably five meters away from each other. We both put a shot in it, um, a good holding shot, and we're swimming back to the surface. And we're a couple of meters below the surface and a Mako, thumping big Mako, one of the biggest Makos I've ever seen, just came straight up vertical and hit that fish and full breach, hit the water and swam away. And we were left with maybe 10 kilos left of this 80 kilo fish. Holy moly. This and is another thing about Mako. People think they're like skinny and long and cute. No. And it's like you watch a couple of videos of Riley Elliott and you think, oh, that's a, that's amazing. I've seen them like five meter long. Yeah, that's what are, this was. This was just, and the guy in the boat, you know, our boat, he's like, oh, did you see that Mako breach? We're like, did we see it? I didn't even, <laughs> I was looking down and I didn't, it was like lightning. Yeah. You know, and that thing yep. took that fish in half. 
Yeah. You know, and and I was just like, man, you've always got in your head, you know, probably the delusion that you could, you know, turn your gun in time or, or you know, get a flipper in the way or, or palm it out of the way or something. Nah. If they're coming at you that fast, you you know, you've already made a big mistake. So you identified a few things before, and I and I think, you know, while we can't do everything to to stop being eaten, like our our, 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 our the percentage chance of being of being taken can be um, reduced by doing a few and adopting a few types of behaviours. Can you go through them again? I think just um, I think being calm, mm. um, being aware of your surroundings is a huge part of it. Um, I think uh, what I didn't mention before was time of day and location. Yeah. You know, if you're out at dawn, um, in those low light situations, the crespuscular periods, um, Ooh, a bit of marine biologist. Yeah. Cause sharks maybe. are crespuscular hunters. You know, they've yep. got the nissitating membrane on the inside of the eye, which actually, uh, reuses available light. So that amplifies the remaining light. So they see far better than us at those periods of 100%. minimal light. Yeah. Okay. You know, and if you're at a river mouth at dawn, you know, you, your likelihood of bumping into something with teeth is probably a little bit higher, you know? Yeah. So I think brain spiking your fish, you know, stopping that agitation in the water as quickly as possible, having a float line and keeping those those fish as far away from you as possible is really important so you can reduce your risk in a lot of different ways. Confidence. Like before you talked about like exposing uh, some newer divers to um, grey nurse sharks when they're in a mm. relatively sedate state because, let's be honest, they have another state just like all sharks do. They definitely do. Uh, um, so but a gradual exposure in as, as controlled an environment as you can because I've exposed someone in a bad way while we're burlying <laughs> and that bloke sold all the gear and never got back in the water again. Yeah, that'll do it. Um, yeah, yeah. And th- that was just um, dusky whalers but three of them coming up in a – you know, a shark nado from yeah. the bottom up a burly trail is is a is a it's a pretty intimidating experience. Yeah, brown shorts experience. Yeah. <laughs> so so gradual exposure. I think the other thing that we did talk about was having a boat and a competent boatie that recognizes uh when you're in distress or yeah, huh? when you ne- you need picking up fast. Yeah, when you're screaming through your snorkel. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna if 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 a if a maker or a great white or something like that comes at you full noise unbeknownst to you and they can be unpredictable, there's very little you can do. There is there is very little you can do. Um, I think you know, like you were saying, that that confidence in the water thing, you know, so much of the shark's behaviour is going to be dependent on your behaviour in the water. You know, mm. if you act like food, they're going to see you. You know, and as much as possible, if you act like, you know, because you throw our fins on as well, we're quite a big animal in the water. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if you're acting confident in the water, um, that's actually got a huge amount to do with it. Yeah, it's good points. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, um, a nice uh, heavy, heavy, heavy topic, particularly coupled with that footage that we've seen of that that, that poor Oh, man. that was horrific. I got sent that footage without any warning about what it was or what I was looking at. Yeah. So I'm sort of halfway through until I realised what I was actually looking at. And, man, that was... It was hard to watch. Yeah, hundred percent. As a person that spends time in the water, oh, and like, yeah. and I think I, I think most spiros love it when they see people in the water using the water doing stuff. Absolutely, because there's there's whole there's a whole segment of our population, even here in Australia, where everyone is we're fancied as a water going, water loving nation. There are whole there's a whole segment of the population that are terrified of getting in the water, mm. and and experiences like that, they definitely 
shape culture and people's perspective. I think in Sydney there, they've seen more full sets of gear for sale and since that's happened than ever before. Yeah, I think anyone that was on that verge of, of you know, not getting in the water or, or just beginning and starting out and being scared of, of sharks, like you were saying, um, I think that was probably the the little nudge they needed to get out of the out of the sport. <laughs> yeah. Then there's suckers like you and me that'll never let go. No, no they're no. there. You know, you see them. Yeah, hundred percent. It's you know the benefits far outweigh the the risks. I think. Um, and you think about how many times you've been in the water. How many times you've actually, you know, seen seen sharks or, or had an experience. You know, I'll dive three to four times a week. I love seeing them too. I'll be honest. Me too. Most of the time. Oh, I favorite animal. You know, I absolute. just I don't like it when I'm in certain circumstances though. If my um if my heckles start to rise, I want to move because mm-hmm. I'm not there to. I don't. I don't need to prove anything or do anything. Like I'm quite happy to move or, yep. or or whatever. But um, you know, like I've seen bull sharks three or four sequential dives in a row, diving a a, a, a you know a 30, 30 foot sort of um reef and in, in current and and so you know it's following you. Yeah, and it's approaching wow. from different angles, and you're in fifteen feet of viz. That that's an intimidating prospect, particularly when they get to that sort of size you're talking about. That yeah. two and a half, three meters, where they start to turn on the girth, they're a scary animal, uh, particularly in low vis conditions. Well, you're not that much, you know, like size wise. They're looking at you, going, "Well, oh, that's not that much bigger." Yeah. I was trying all my tricks. I was dropping my guts. <laughs> I, was, I was pissing in my wits and I was doing everything I could, but he, he just wanted to hang around me. Oh, but, that's uh, frightening. I don't, I don't think any of that works, by the way, so don't do not do that. Don't listen to me. <laughs> but uh, a nice, delicate segue as usual. Um, funny stuff, Yanni. Uh, you had some good times out in the water. Have you got good mates, good funny bastards you like to hang out with? I do, I do. I've got a, a core group of, you know, a core group of people I like to dive with. Um, you know, all low ego, I think, is important. You know, that that ability to actually, like you were saying, to pull a pin if needed, um, move on from an area or just, you know, see the fun in it instead of actually sort of going for trophy fish over the sake of safety, I think is um, is really good and, and important to have with your friends. Um, and everything, you know, like I've, one of my one of my favorite dive buddies is uh, one of my cousins, Colin, and you know we were over on our the island that our family comes from in Greece, oh, diving wow. over there. It, uh, it's called Castellorizo, sort of down south of Rhodes near Turkey, and both of us, you know, diving along there, and it was great to see where our family was from, and you know the viz is forty meters plus, and not a lot of fish as you as you know in sort of those parts of the Mediterranean. Um, but we're cruising along, and I'd seen these sort of oyster clams along the rocks. And, uh, and Colin was talking about, you know, oh, we should we should eat some, like we should get some and take them back. And we get out of the water at the end of the dive and he's like, oh, man, I saw all these clams, but, you know, they'd all been opened and, and you know, um, I, didn't, I didn't actually get any. <laughs> I was swimming along ahead of him eating them. <laughs> uh, so pretty... you, gave, you, you gave him a, a, a barren dive field. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty dirty about that. So, but... Uh, yeah, everything, you know, like that, that was great. Even, you know, working up in the Whit Sundays, you know, we'd, uh, I'd do the dive briefing for all of the British tourists before they jump in the water. I'd tell them that, you know, those, uh, there's a, there's a red, a blue and yellow fish in there. You know, the, the government needs, it's like a drop bear, but the government needs to sort of, uh, you know, needs us to do this spiel. No one's seen them in years, but they're highly venomous. They're highly aggressive, you know, 
Um, we've never seen them in this area, but uh, you've got to just watch out. By law, we've got to tell you about them, <laughs> you know, and they'd jump in the water and you'd throw a big handful of fish food and all the blue and yellow fusiliers would come up <laughs> and you'd just hear the screams from every single British <laughs> Never not funny. So, how, how, Australia must have a, uh, a reputation all around the world for doing gags like that. It's like favourite trip there. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Fresh meat yeah. every every three days. So that was, yeah. that was great, you know. Yeah. They call it hazing in other countries. Here we just call it like everyday life, don't oh, we? You know, you got to have fun, don't you? 100%. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Do you like to penetrate? Great news. Penetrator Fins, today's Noob Spirit podcast sponsor, are tough as nails. Robust, dependable performance with beyond industry standard warranty. Communicate direct with Larry and his team 24-7 for all your fin inquiries at penetratorfins.com or at penetratorfins on Instagram. Baby spun finish. These things are smooth as silk. They glide through the water. They give you that awesome balance between power and efficiency. This is Penetrator Fins. Use the code Anoopspiro to save $25 on any pair of Penetrator Fins at PenetratorFins.com. That's right, use the code Noobspiro to save $25 on any pair of Penetrator Fins at PenetratorFins.com. Kill fish with precision and power, sending shafts from a stable platform with Kill Shots Spear Guns. Made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin, you're buying American-made dependable spear guns. Get $30 off any Kill Shot Spear Gun at KillShotSpearGuns.com. Com. Yes and amen, Nuba. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at killshotspearguns.com. It says if they're in the shop or on the phone, they can cash in by saying, crikey, mate, or the Noob Spiro podcast sent me. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com, based in the Florida Keys. Yanni, we are coming down to the back end of the interview. Um, I love to chat with guys about what's in their dive bag you're south of sydney so you're dealing with pretty cold water in the winter are you diving all year round yeah 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 three to four three to four times a week year round so oh, uh, i'm envious <laughs> all right I, like brisbane diving is phenomenal but just access sometimes is the issue eh? yeah so good on you man three four times all right so what, what's your what's in your gear bag what are you wearing what's in my gear bag um summertime it's uh like a two mil Full suit, um, okay. just to protect from stingers and stuff like that. We do get a few stingers. Um, What's a water temp in summer? This year it's been hotter than I've ever seen. You know, this year it was pushing in 24 degrees um, in close, um, 25.5 off the fads. Wow. So for down here, that's pretty warm. And normally it's around that 21, 22 degrees in close. So yep. uh, winter uh, can get down around the 16s. You know, 14 if we get a real cold current come through. So you're in a 5 mil? Um, 5 mil, yeah. Yeah, got a 5 mil Cressy um, for that. Um, I run a number of different guns. I've got my standards, just a Rob Allen Sparrow yep. um, 110. Yeah, beautiful. You just can't beat them. You know, they're bulletproof. They just keep going. They do, and you can shoot everything, you know, everything from a nice big king right the way through all your reef species. You know, it's such a variable, like a good varied like varied gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I make my own guns. So okay. I've got a couple of uh, timber guns um, that I've made myself, mm. and I run those um, as well. Um, you what, like you I just said, made composite type ones? No, no, um, no, no, I routed them out and like a uh, – Single a, piece of timber. 
Yeah, yeah, single piece of timber or laminated, actually. Oh, yeah, laminated, yeah. Um, yeah, laminated uh, teak. Okay. So, yeah. Nice. And they're, they're great. Um, a lot of work goes into them. You look at it and think, oh. 100%. Yeah. You know, it's not going to take that long. And, you know, they do. They take a lot longer than, than what you think. But uh, there's nothing better than shooting a fish with a gun you've made with your own hands. Yeah. It's a little bit like putting a meal in front of your family where nothing has come from something that you didn't catch or grow or yeah. yeah, yeah, um, but I think you know, yeah, I've got the I dive with the Rob Allen um, Cubera mask. Yep, um, love that thing again. Just fits my face. Mm. You know, nice and comfy. Um, fins, fins. If it's a shore diver, the the old Cressy Garras. Oh yeah, nice you know, plastics. That great. Plastics, bulletproof. Don't worry about scratching them, kicking them, anything mm. like that. Um, and just a set of um, medium. Dive ours for yeah, nice. you know from boat for boat diving, fiberglass or fiberglass, or, yeah, yep, okay, yeah, yep. nice. Um, okay. and then yeah, always, um, always with a flasher, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's just you know bred into me from my dad. Um, and as much for squid as for anything else, mm. you know, I find I get more squid with you know just tossing a flasher around, it just brings them in, mm. so yeah. They can't resist that 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 flash a lot. I've never done it actually, but um, I have seen my mate James in Melbourne made a phenomenal video about spearfishing Melbourne, and he's got a massive section in there about hunting squid. And uh, yeah, right, it's, it's cool learning about them. Um, uh, and again, another incredibly underwatched, amazing video that's on YouTube. It's like in the spearfishing YouTube space, there's so many awesome videos that just don't get picked up, and. You know, yeah, maybe thumbnails and headlines can be improved and all the rest of it, but there's some algorithmic um, skullduggery at play, I have a feeling, and <laughs> I really dislike it because there's parts of our spearfishing culture that I just don't think are seen enough. And Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, our southern spearfishing on YouTube for those that are interested in that. Um, cool. Was that it for equipment? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Cool. Pretty much. It's just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty basic. To be yeah. honest, when, it, when when all that sort of stuff's said and done, you know, I've I've got a roller gun. I don't really use it for anything other than, you know, when we're offshore for tuna or for um, mahi. Do you do you have an adjustment when you switch between guns? Oh, not really. Okay, not really. They're all pro- pretty well sighted in and um, pretty well used. So nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. Last. Let's get through this fast paced round of questions. It's Spiro Q and A. Are you ready? Yep. All right, cool. What is the single best piece of advice you've ever been given for spearfishing? Get to the bottom. Who has been the most influential person or people in your spearfishing? My, my old man for sure. Yeah, 100%. Sounds like an awesome bloke. Yeah. Um, if you had to start all over again, would you do anything differently? Not a thing. Not a thing. Two more questions. What is the spearfishing destination you'd most like to go to? Oh, a spearfishing destination. Ah, uh, Ascension Island. Ah, uh, big yellowfin? Big yellowfin, you know, sickles, you know, hardening off and, and almost touching the tail like those. Yeah. yeah. It's an amazing visual, those. And just the place as well, like the history and the and the location and all of that. Just that would be an incredible place to go. I don't know much about it, but I should ask um, some of the blokes that are running the charter out of there. Yeah. All right, last question, uh, Yanni. Um, could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence? Oh, 
spearfishing experience for me is just a part of my life. It's just a part of my everyday week and and a part of the way I, I feed my family. Love it. Yanni, awesome. I've had a blast, man. Um, if people are curious, and I would encourage them to do so. You've got a, an awesome um, Instagram that I only recently started following, I think this morning, actually. Uh, I wasn't even aware of it. It's Hunt, Fish, Grow, Cook. But you've got heaps of cool stuff in here. Like, as you said earlier, like seasonal produ- uh, produce and fish. Uh, there's no ego here. It's it's about what you're putting on on your um, on your plates for your family, and I, I like it, man. Yeah, cheers. Appreciate it. Is there anywhere else people can um, come and have a look at any stuff or connect with you? No, no, oh. just on uh, just basically Instagram, um, the occasional YouTube video for a catch and cook. Yeah, cool. And um, is that, and hunt, that it. hunt fish grow cook on YouTube yep. as well? Okay, yep. cool. All right, awesome. Yeah, there's a few catch and cooks on there already. So yeah. Cool. Well, if guys forget any of that, go to noobspirit.com forward slash Yanni, Y-I-A-N-N-I, because um, we need to learn how to say it. <laughs> but mate, I appreciate thank, it. Thanks for jumping on the podcast today. Thanks for your um, input into the book. I think you've got at least half a dozen recipes that have made it into the book, so you're going to get awesome. six copies, um, hopefully um, June, we're going to say, July. it's like you know you do these crowdfunded things and you have very ambitious timelines and yep just the reality of a project as you're aware being a businessman like um these things do push out but you want to just do it right so it's looking absolutely friggin' cool though so i think you know with the with the market the way it is and with people the way they are and and the appetite for these sort of things i think the book's gonna do really well yeah cheers you know i can't wait Awesome. All good, Yanni. We'll enjoy the rest of your day, brother. You too. Speak soon. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It was brought brought to you by legends just like you, but people who support the podcast on an episode-by-episode basis at patreon.com forward slash noobspero. And I uh, just want to thank all the legends that have left reviews for the podcast, told their mates about it, you guys are the ones that keep this show growing and uh, we've had more than a million downloads now and it's just from people just like you listening in and tuning in. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love making this show and uh, it's brought to you by patron listeners just like you. If you wanted to find out anything about today's episode, go to noobspero.com forward slash Yanni, Y-I-A-N-N-I and uh, all the socials will be linked up there. Fantastic interview. I had a mad yarn with him. I don't know who we got in two weeks. I have had... Some scheduling dramas, trying to get over another Canadian, actually. Uh, I'm really looking forward to bringing her to you, but it, we just haven't made it happen yet. I'm hoping it's so, but I don't want to spook it just in case we don't. the stars don't align. But anyway, thanks for listening to the today's show. As usual, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, Shrek at Noob Spiro. If you want a cop, an early copy of uh, 99 Spiro Recipes, go to noobspiro.com forward slash 99 Spiro Recipes. Love yous. Catch ya. Today's episode was an absolute banger, and so is our major sponsor, Adreno. Visit them at adreno.com.au. They have a huge range of equipment. You can find it at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpirit checkout when you shop online. You can save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can even use that code in-store at some of their huge mega stores Australia-wide. Price beat guarantee on any Australian spearfishing equipment price. Again, visit them at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpirit. The Noob Spirit Podcast is incredibly proud 
to be partnering with Neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on. It's the very best in spearing gear from around the planet. Neptonics is also the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing gear, particularly in the US. They've got free shipping on all orders over $99 in the US. Furthermore, you can use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off on your entire shopping basket at Neptonics.com. Use the code NOOBSPIRIT, Neptonics.com.